Right, let's continue our series, Messy Church. Why have I called it that? Because the Corinthian church was a mess, yet it was full of incredible stuff too. That um, they were incredibly powerful in the Holy Ghost. They were incredibly knowledgeable by the Holy Spirit. They heard the voice of God clearly. There was no spiritual gift lacking in the church. Yet there was all sorts of errors doctrinally, relationally, in terms of their practices of worship. Um, And lots of the Corinthian culture was filtering into the church and affecting the way they did church. And the Apostle Paul, who planted it, wanted to correct it and bring it to order um, as an apostolic figure, as a father in the house. Okay, let's go to the first slide after this. If you remember last week, there were three points. We only got through the first one. I am going to recap on the first one because there'll be people here who weren't present on that. We may get through two and three, but potentially it's only going to be through two. I've got ambition for three, two and three, but it might just be that we do uh, two. The scary thing on that is you may not finish First Corinthians in your lifetime or someone may shoot me from the congregation. Um, you might buy an air rifle or something and communicate forcefully that Corinthians is kind of Drying up on them. <laughs> I hope that's not the case. Um, let's jump into this. So if you remember, Paul spent only a couple of days in Athens, but an entire year and a half in Corinth. That's because Athens was a failing college or a, f- a fading college town, and it was full of people who heard the message, but really there was no breakthrough. They said, we'll hear you again on this, Paul. So like a wise apostle, he moved to a place where there was opportunity, a place where um, the gospel could be translated on ships and on foot from that incredible hub of religious and economic activity. Paul probably would have made tents for the Isthmian Games, I said last week. And lots of his illustrations have sporting analogies in First Corinthians, probably because of what he was viewing at the time he was tent making. In Athens, Paul faced Stoic and Epicurean philosophers just before his trip to Corinth. What were they? they were, the Greek culture were basically into something called dualism, which is that they believed that the body was evil and the soul and spirit was good. And because of that, depending on where you sat... If you were Epicurean, it was like, well, I don't give a monkey's what I do in the body because I know it's evil and my spirit's untouched. The Stoic philosophers were like, because the body's evil, I will train myself to make sure from the spirit man, which is pure, my body does as it's told. And some Stoicism, they had people balancing on large, tall poles, seeing how long they could balance to control the flesh and all sorts of crazy stuff like that. So Paul went into Athens and confronted this culture with a statement that said, your worldly wisdom is landing you in a place of spiritual poverty. The cross is what you all need. You're all a bunch of sinners. Can you imagine telling the crowd that? You need an, an unknown God who sent his son to die for you on a cross. And that God man, fully God, fully man, was buried, rose from the dead. And to the Jewish and uh, Greek minds, both were foolishness. And then Paul went into Corinth and... Um, the same thing was happening probably in the Isthmian Games, in the marketplaces. There'd be all sorts of street entertainment, which was essentially showing off how well you could speak, because that was a thing in the day. Rhetoric was the entertainment of the day, and you would show off who you were trained by and how you could speak so eloquently. So the Apostle Paul, on the back of that, came in 
with this passage to the Corinthians because he came with a different spirit and different method, which was countercultural. 1 Corinthians 1, 17 to chapter 2, verse 5. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were inferential. Not many of you were noble. In birth, but God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of this and in him that you're in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, it is as it's written, let no one who boasts, sorry, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it is with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing whilst I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with persuasive words of men's wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So your faith might not rest in human wisdom, but in God's power. Now, if there's anyone contributed to the New Testament, certainly in the early church, who could have preached and taught with eloquence uh, and understanding, he was such a genius, the Apostle Paul. There's no one in scholarship who denies the genius of Paul. I would think Apollos was up there. Apollos was a really incredible guy and very eloquent, well-trained. But Paul could have leveled them with the way they liked it. He could have measured up to their standards of what someone should look like when they communicate to us. He kept it very simple. Jesus died for you because you're sinners. I need to repent. I need to come to be reconciled to God. And it was that sort of, even for Paul, it was against his natural ability. And of course, God backed him up with signs and wonders following, but he didn't preach to the Jews to give them signs and he didn't speak to the Gentiles with the wisdom that they wanted to hear, he just came straight at it. You need the Lord Jesus Christ who died for you. And that was what bore fruit. And he's trying to challenge, if you remember in the previous three weeks, the culture of sectarianism, the divisions within the church that were ultimately fueled by men's wisdom. So whether it was a Jewish mindset, so the clan of Cephas that Paul describes in chapter one, the Jewish mind, listen, that's not going to save you. The Christ party, yes, you do need leaders. That's causing division. That's not going to save you. Apollos, his eloquence, 
You're attracted to men, you're carnal. Leaders that God gifts you, preferences in church worship and style and ways of being, denominationalism, i.e. there's different clans in the church, all of that is of this world. God kept it simple when he brought the kingdom to earth. Jesus came and brought heaven to earth. What do you make of the man? And then more than that, what do you, so, so when people take you down rabbit holes when you're talking about the gospel, it's, it's a little bit more than what do you make of the man? What do you make of the man who died for you? Because Gert Ludeman, an atheist, said the cross is one of the most attestable facts of ancient world history. You can't hide from the cross. It happened. It's no fairy story. Jesus died. J.A. Robinson, another atheist, said Jesus was buried. It's a fact. My paraphrase. Jesus lived. There's more evidence for him than the emperors on the coin of the day. He was crucified. He was buried. Every other theory for his resurrection is pathetic. In academic literature, they have the appearance of the brother hypothesis. In other words, Jesus had a twin brother separated from birth. Just so happens on the day that he was butchered for being a bit of a radical, his brother that he'd never seen in his life turns up, steals the body, passes him off as himself and gets a following. Are you kidding me? That's a genuine PhD thesis. And why are they putting that in literature? Because the rest is not up for debate. Jesus died. So what do you make of the man? What do you make of the cross? Was Jesus who he said he was? So Lionel Luku, the Queen's lawyer, the greatest lawyer in world history, the most murder acquittals in world history, who started an atheist and then the Queen tasked him and said, find evidences for the resurrection based on the data. A man who was acquainted with the process of evidence-based verdicts. He came out of that process and said, and I paraphrase again, but you'll find it on Google, there is so much evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that it leaves no, and this is his words, leaves no reasonable room for doubt. Based on the facts, not based on religious experience, not based on, I think I'm better than you because I know stuff, but hard data. Jesus was crucified, Jesus the Nazarene, he was buried, and many, many people were led to their death supporting this hallucination. I'm sorry, but there's no room for that in a rational mind. And so Paul confronts the Corinthians and said, I didn't come to baptize. You're all boasting about who baptized you, which leader's important. I'm telling you, the only thing that's important is be reconciled to God through the cross of Calvary. And all your little tribes that you've got in your church, your little doctrinal preferences, can I tell you that's interesting conjecture? You can have your opinion. It's good to have a position, but don't fall out over it. Are we hearing, are we hearing one another? This is why the Protestant church is one of the most divided subcultures in human history. Probably the most divided. Because we all like to fall out over doctrine. It's pathetic. It's not what Jesus came to build. Jesus said, I will build my church. And his church are the ones who follow him in the leading of the spirit every day of their life. That's why I'm adamant that there are people in every Christian denomination that said Jesus was my substitute on the cross. A sinless son of God. Eternally God. And became a man. He died in my place. That's my brother. That's my sister. They believe what I believe. The rest, we can talk about it till the cows come home, but they're saved through Christ's faith. Are we, are we listening to this church? Because what the world has to offer is inadequate for dealing with the maladies of human experience. The world cannot answer its own questions. And yet it leans on its own wisdom and says, we have enough. And then it gets to its death and says, help. 
I have, as a pastor, and maybe you've seen it too, there'll be people who've worked in uh, palliative care nursing, I know my mum did, and other difficult professions. I've seen lots of people pass from this land now, since I've been, pass from this planet. I don't remember a Christian that didn't have a sense of victory in that moment. It's an unusual thing that there's no fear on the life. What's going on there? Security in that moment, that's, this life is not the only thing. There is an eternity. There is a God who loves me. There is an eternal shepherd king. How wonderful is that news? It's good news. Jesus opened up a pathway into an eternal paradise through the cross. Why not trumpet it? It's worth everything. Stephen Fry, video please. This is the wisdom of this world. A man I deeply love, would love a meal with him. He's too clever for me, though. I'd probably bore him. Listen to Stephen Fry. Stations. Suppose it's all true, mm. and you walk up to the pearly gates, and you are confronted by God. What will Stephen Fry say to him, her, or it? I will basically, what's known as the Odyssey, I think, I... I'll say, bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I'd say. And you think you're going to get in no, on that? No, but I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to get in on his terms. They're wrong. Now, if I died and it was, it was Pluto, Hades, and if it was the 12 Greek gods, then I would have more truck with it because the Greeks were... They didn't pretend not to be human in their appetites and in their capriciousness and in their unreasonableness. They didn't present themselves as being all-seeing, all-wise, all-kind, all-beneficent because the god who created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac. Utter maniac. Totally selfish. Totally... We have to spend our life on our knees thanking him? What kind of God would do that? Yes, the world is very splendid, but it also has in it insects whose whole life cycle is to burrow into the eyes of children and make them blind. They eat outwards from the eyes. Why? Why did you do that to us? You could easily have made a, a creation in which that didn't exist. It is simply not acceptable. So, you know, atheism is not just about not believing there is a, is not believing there's a God, but on the assumption that there is one, what kind of God is he? It's perfectly apparent that he is monstrous, utterly monstrous, and deserves no respect whatsoever. The moment you banish him, your life becomes simpler, purer, cleaner, more worth living, in my opinion. That sure is the longest answer to that question <laughs> that I ever got in this. Now, I know... That video is containing some weighty themes, but it's a strong example of how the world thinks in its intelligence. The reality is he's reverse engineering with no revelation of God. In his intellect, and he's got one of the greatest intellects we'll hear in the entertainment industry, he cannot access the divine. The challenge that we have to Stephen Fry when he mentioned the one word theodicy is essentially the problem of evil in the world. So whether you put God in that equation or you remove him, theodicy says, why do bad things happen to good people? 
Well, if God is all good, then he can't be all powerful because he'd stop it if he could. If God is all powerful, then he can't be all good because he'd stop it. And theodicy has in the middle of it a distracting and confusing propensity to divert people into their own thinking. And, well, the assumption is there can't be a God or he must be a monster. But this is where Paul's teaching on the cross nails it. Because every one of us, if you want to bring the theodicy card up, the problem of evil, which is what happened with that dog walker that I told you about last week, he said, removing God from the equation, there must be good and bad people. I said, what about you and me? You've got stuff in you that you know you're ashamed of and relationships that you broke and hurt. Have you made someone cry? Like, yeah, yeah. I said, oh, what do we do with that evil in us? The Apostle Paul to the Roman church in Romans chapter 7 says, nothing good lives in my flesh. He says, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Apostle Paul, one of the righteous proponents of the Christian faith, said, I'm a scumbag. I need the Lord. And this is the problem for Stephen Fry. And I mentioned Jordan Peterson and took him to task over that. If you watch another video on it, a modern philosopher that's incredibly bright on his level got saved recently or belief in Jesus. And he's super intellectual like the Apostle Paul was. And he's heartbroken in this moment trying to convey to another clever guy, Stephen Fry, Steve, what about your conscience? You've just told me when you go to bed you regret some of the things you've done in the day. Where's that come from if you're a walking bag of chemicals? And there's no answer to it. Where does moral conscience come from? It must be from a moral lawgiver. And so confronting someone with their depravity, which is the starting point to salvation, is something that the Holy Spirit does. This is why I'm slowly learning to hate certain things that we've done for centuries as Christians. It works and God works through them. Altar calls, literature booths. Don't get me wrong, at the Billy Graham conferences, many, many people are saved. Carlos Anacondia, Reinhard Bonnke. They do, they come, they peel forward, but that's really a recent advancement in the church, 20th century evangelicalism, beginning of the 20th century after the Wesleys, William Booth, um, D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday, Billy Graham, Leonard Ravenhill. It was a practice of the evangelicals to call people to the anxious bench. That was the first person... Charles Finney, the, the, new, the revivalist in America, come and sit on the front row if you're really concerned about your soul. They formalized a way of getting people in. I don't see that before that. And we just do it because we've always done it. The data says that under 10%, and a lot less than that actually, of the very best evangelists stay saved and walking with the Lord. So they come to the front, they're emotional just as I am without one plea. I come and get a decision card. I'm in the club, I learn Christianese, and then something comes into life and they go away and then we get confused in theology and say, was that person saved anyway? We all have our debates about it. The reality is people stay saved as far as I'm concerned. You might be like, I know someone. I don't want to even nail McCullough to the mass. Well, you're a Calvinist, Steve. People stay saved because it's God who saves me. And I can't earn my salvation. If I could do anything to save me, I should be praised too. 
Salvation, and we'll get into it in the passage one week, is God chooses you. That's what Paul says in the passage we've just read. I don't even want to get into divine election and the theology of God choose. I don't want to get into that. I don't care. God confronts a sinner with their depravity and says, you need a savior. And if you've never been to the cross and been confronted with this is my only way to be saved because of the holy God that confronted me, you've never been saved. You might be a good person. You might know lots of Christian theology. You might be one of the best in the community. But unless you've come to that place where God has eyeballed you somehow by his spirit, because the Bible says it's the work of the spirit to convict and sin and sin, and come really close, like C.S. Lewis in Magdalene College, that great writer. C.S. Lewis said, I, I felt the presence of the one approaching I didn't want to meet. And he, he came to me, and he literally, I quote Lewis, dragged me kicking and screaming into the kingdom, the most reluctant and dejected convert to Christianity the world has ever seen. Because he knew he needed a saviour. And this is why the cross, Jesus says, Paul, Paul's right, Jesus is the wisdom of God, the strength of God, the power of God is the answer to the Jews, the Greeks. It's because it's simple. You have a sinful propensity that only God can fix. And you know, the blood-soaked cross is something that God never intended to be confusing. It screams at the depth God needed to go to rescue us. It shouts of God's love. The Bible says in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. The shout of God for our depravity, for your depravity, for my depravity daily is the blood of the Lamb. The mercy of God is housed in the cross of Christ, the covering of his blood that says Steve Carey will never, ever be able to earn his salvation. He'll never be able to maintain his salvation. He'll never be able to get in at the pearly gates, whatever they were saying on that video. Unless he says, only Jesus. My righteousness is not my own, neither is yours. It was bought with a price, not my effort. This is where religion bows the knee to Jesus Christ crucified. There is no other world religion that says God came to man to save them. Every other religion says, man, go to God, work you up, please, Allah, please, you know, go through the samsara cycle if you want to go Eastern philosophy. Balance your karma and dharma, make sure you're good enough. You might go up a level. Oh, you're offended, you're speaking counter across cultures and offending people. I'm telling you, religion can't save you. Not even Christian religion, only Jesus. Jesus said a very politically incorrect statement. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. In him was inherent life. So when he was buried in the tomb, bodies were thrown out of the tomb. Can you imagine that day? That's an awesome day. Him who is resurrection and life going into the realm of the dead. And the grave spit out dead bodies. Because you get around Jesus, who is in essence resurrection and life. And things start to change. I'm sorry that I'm preaching. I do apologize. I am honestly trying to teach you. I'm trying to be all Christ. Calvary Chapel. <laughs> Coming a bit more like Reinhard Bonnke, but anyway. 
So we looked at this idea that the gospel message is the opposite of worldly wisdom. And whoever you are, however clever you are, you will not be able to get in through being clever enough. God alone is the source. That's what I meant by the born again thing. Of course, in the English translation, it says you must be born again, but it doesn't actually. Jesus says you must be born from the source. If you translate it literally in the Greek, you must be born from above. In other words, it's God. I'm not going to fall out with you. I believe in new birth. I believe we're born again. But the ultimate message behind that is that God does it. God births people. The spirit goes where it wishes, Jesus says to Nicodemus. And you see the effects. That's what I was trying to teach last week. Feel free to carry on calling yourself a born-again believer and understand my perspective on that. This, this change has to be wrought by the Spirit, otherwise we could be praised. I need to move on quickly. The wisdom of this world was already defeated in Jesus. T.S. Eliot, this, this is another example of worldly wisdom, said, All our knowledge brings us nearer to our ignorance, and all our ignorance brings us nearer to our death. But nearness to death is no nearer to God. Where is the life we've lost in living? That's why verse 21 says, for after that in the wisdom of God, the world by its wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Isn't that wonderful? So they're all sitting, can you imagine the hearers, sitting where they're seats of learning and all the clever ones around with their beards to the feet and philosophizing about what is truth when will we know God when will we be as high as God and they're having this lovely intellectual club and in a carpenter's shop in Nazareth the God of heaven has come to dwell with men can you imagine how crazy this is to the clever ones and they're missing it because they can't get off the high pinnacle of human learning let's jump on I'm missing out loads. But we preach Christ crucified, he says, in verse 23, unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. That phrase stumbling block in the Greek is scandalon, which is where you get the word scandal from. It's scandalous to the Greek mind that, because they thought the gods were strong on Mount Olympus, that a god would be somehow taken by men and butchered. It's foolishness. The Jews who asked Jesus for a sign regularly were saying, show us, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Show us that you're God. No, I'll just die for you. That's weird. Who are you? The natural mind, whether you're a scribe or whether you're a philosopher, Paul says in this writing, isn't going to work. And you know, there's loads of offshoots from Christianity that dismantle basic belief in a crucified son of God. There was a book recently called Love Wins. Have you read it? Has anyone heard it? Raise your hand if you've... Love Wins, by, uh, and I don't normally out people, but since he's always been on Oprah Winfrey, he's pretty public. Rob Bell was a brilliant Bible teacher in his early days, but it's very easy to go off on something that's going to take people down a different direction. Love Wins, everyone gets in. That's going to get you on Oprah Winfrey. That's going to make you her spiritual advisor. You get a book deal that will sell a load. God's not as harsh as you think. It's all right, we're all in. There's no hell. It's good, love wins. Sorry, Rob, that's not what the Bible says. Forgive me for mentioning a name, but he's public, so I will. And I think he's gone away from Orthodox Christianity. 
It reminds me of John Lennon's Imagine All the People. Imagine there's no heaven. Forgive me if you love this song. Imagine there's no heaven. I wish there was a better singer on the platform. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above is only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Ah. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. Philosopher gathering everyone around him. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. I love that. I can imagine him with Yoko Ono on a bed, white bed and singing a nice song with his mates all around him with their beards. No, nothing against Beatles. Changed pop music forever. Wonderful. But it's worldly philosophy. That song is essentially humanism laced with new age thinking. And it leads you nowhere. Because there is a God. There is a revelation in the Son of God who said there's a heaven, there's a hell. There's righteousness, there's judgment. So the Jesus who rose from the dead is coming again, in case you didn't know this, to judge the world in righteousness. And some will be sheep, Jesus' description, and will go to heaven. He's using imagery. Some will be goats and will go to an eternal separation from God. That's what the Bible teaches. And so the cross is my only out with that level of truth. And as Christians, it's very easy to want to water it down to make ourselves acceptable, but we cannot in these days water down truth for the sake of becoming popular. We have to tell people the truth. You know, I heard a story recently about a man hanging on a cliff, shouting for help. Can you imagine it? And a voice from heaven said, let go. And he shouted back, who's saying that? The voice came back, God. He thought for a minute and then he shouted back, is there anyone else up there that can give me a hand? That's how our world operates to the truth of the gospel. They hear it. They rationalize it. And they pick something that appears to be more humane appears to be more wise, appears to give them momentary peace rather than confronting the issues of their own soul and heart. Maybe that's you today. If it is, I encourage you to get right with God through Jesus Christ who died for you on a cross. So often we share the gospel and people reject the message as foolishness. They're merely the man hanging off the cliff. Now let's go on to the next point. Forgive me. I knew we'd only get through two. The second issue is that Paul develops his argument in inviting believers to look now at their own personal experience of what their conversion was. He shows them that the gospel of grace is the opposite of worldly pride. Verse 26 says, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called... He's essentially saying, remember, Corinthians, when you were called, not many of you had high social standing in this world. Not many of you were noble people. 
That doesn't mean that noble people can't get saved. Think about the Moravians that I mentioned last week. Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf was really high up in society. Lady Huntington, as an example in the 1700s, commented on that passage and said, the letter M in that passage saved me. Thank God, Lady Huntington said, it didn't say not any a noble. Thank the Lord there was an M on the end of any to make it many and she said not many were noble thank god people can get in of high standing but the paul that we love in this scripture text is confronting the corinthians and saying you're puffing your chest out corinthians you're calling yourself in chapter four kings you think you're special you think you're jedi christians because you can do miracles and because you can hear god and have prophetic words the truth remains that the best people in the church are the ones who suffer the most and he lists out the apostles, as an example, those who are led around the stadium. We'll come to that on another day. And in challenging their worldly pride, he's saying, look, guys, can you not remember what you were before you came in? Not many of you were high up. Not many of you were well-respected. And then he goes on to say, and that's a good thing, because God chose the weak things of this world to confound the wise. It puts on display the mercy of God. I know many former drug dealers, many gangsters, Many people who were horrific. One of my first deacons was one of my best leaders ever. And he was essentially the guy who ran drugs in Yorkshire before he got saved. He got kidnapped by the IRA for dealing on their patch in Liverpool. And whilst he was down on the floor tied up in a room and there was a drunk load of guys around him, they took a shotgun to his mouth. And because they were so drunk, they missed. Such was the hardness of this guy's character that he thought, I'm tied up, I'm on the floor. I'm lying down, I might as well have a sleep. So he, had a nod, he nodded off amongst that context. He was tremendously hard. His best friend was Mark Goddard, the hardest MMA leader, so mixed martial arts leader of Europe. And he, he, I went to his stag do, he called it a stag don't, and opposite me was a guy who owned a lap dancing club, a Polish man called Seb, his lap dancing girlfriend, and a converted Mark wearing a crown of thorns top on his thing that said, Jesus Christ. And Seb said to him, hey, you can't wear that in here. I know what that means. And Mark was able to answer, Jesus is here too in this pub, in this meal table. And you can know him too, Seb. And then the whole of the conversation in that meal was all about, it'll never last. We know Mark. Trust me, it lasted. It lasted so well. He was a holy man that helped the poor in that area. He was a very clever businessman. And he spent his life on the poor in the West Midlands on the back of his conversion. But was darkness, now is light. This is what the gospel does. It takes the weak of this world and it sets them up on a high hill to proclaim Jesus. And it confounds the wisdom of this world. How do they deserve to preach the gospel? Why do they have such power? It's not like the world system that gives promotion to those who are worthy. God exalts those who are humble. But he opposes the proud. Verse 29 says, this is so that no flesh should glory in his presence. It's good news, isn't it? Is that good news? It means that every one of us can be used of the Lord. Everyone can be saved. It doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been. So if you're like me, who's done things you're not pleased with in your life, and you're ashamed of approaching the Lord, let me tell you that God makes you acceptable in Jesus Christ not by your own works of raising the bar to please him. Is that good news? I am going to rush to the end. I know it's 12 now and I want to. 
close this down. Let me say to you, in addition to standing against the world's wisdom for status and position, he also moves in an opposite way to worldly persuasion. And he says that the Corinthian bent towards rhetoric of being clever speakers was not the way I spoke to you, though I could have done, as I said earlier. He was saying, I want to stick to the message about the cross and the blood that splattered it. I want to tell you straight so that nobody will be confused. I don't want to impress you. I have nothing to impress you with. I want to tell you that you need to be saved. And I would echo the Apostle Paul. The gospel is about blood. It's about nails. It's about pain. It's about anguish. It's about wrath. It's about hell and being saved from it. This is the good news. All people are on a speeding train towards an eternal hell, and only Jesus can save you. And you know, in a world where we can easily become proud of the way that we are as leaders and as people of God, it's very easy to get proud of your own abilities, what you can do for God. Let me tell you a story in close, and you'll see that I've rushed the third point. There's a great story about a guy called G.H. Lang in his book entitled God at Work in His Own Lines. And he tells of an illegitimate draper in Cornwall called Mr. Gribble. Love that name. Mr. Gribble invited people into his home and he used to read a penny sermon to them. And there were people saved on the back of him just reading a penny sermon, a bit like Jonathan Edwards read the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And many people were saved with Jonathan Edwards preaching in New England in America. Mr. Gribble would read these penny sermons and a few people were saved. And after a while, this illiterate draper from Cornwall got the confidence to say a few words of his own free will. And there were hundreds of people getting saved on the back of Mr. Gribble's drivel. It's a wonderful story. J.M. Darby wrote to S.T. Tregellis in a letter and he wrote this. There are few men who can preach the gospel more fluently than you and I can. And we see few souls saved. And they tell me there is an illiterate brother called Gribble. And when he quotes scripture, when he quotes scripture, There are people swept into the kingdom. G.H. Lang in his book says, Mr. Darby's question is well worth pondering. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Hallelujah. Bow your heads, we're done. I'm not going to do an altar call. I'm not going to emotionally manipulate you. But if you're not right with God, if you know you're not right with God, today's the day. Jesus died for you. You're forgiven of your sins. Past, present, future. You're accepted in the beloved who is Jesus Christ. You can know God personally. Today's the day. Let's all pray this prayer together. And if you pray it for the first time or as a recommitment of your life to the Lord.
Can you let me know, please? And I'll do my best to look after you. And you know, we're not, we're not recruiting. There's loads of good churches in the world. But we do care about your soul. Should we pray? Everyone pray this prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for dying for me. I know I've sinned and I'm deserving of hell. But I receive your forgiveness and I accept the salvation that Jesus came to bring. Fill me with the Holy Spirit now and help me live entirely for you. Follow you all the days of my life. Amen. Praise the Lord. If you prayed that prayer for the first time or as a rededication of your life to the Lord, can you let me know? And we will do our best to look after you. Praise God.